You are listening to the Mill Sunday School Podcast. This is the kind of the second week of missions. Last week I talked about the overall picture of missions, starting with Abraham, going to the Great Commission, looking at what missions has meant to the church, what it has meant to evangelism and the, the story of Christendom. Um, and today I'm going to talk about, more specifically, U.S. church history and missions, and we're going to kind of address what is called the modern missions movement. Um, so that's this week, or that this month of May. Like Jordan said, Joe's out of town. He's coming back next week. And something that he talked about before he left, and I wanted to kind of remind you guys as he gets ready to come back, something that you can be thinking about is that Joe's going to start to have small groups that happen out of the Mill Sunday School. And what he's looking for is a group of people who are willing to be brave, courageous, and lead a small group. So if that's something that you've been curious about doing, ever been interested in having a small group, think about it this week, and when Joe gets back next week, he might make a little announcement and you can talk to him. But it's just something to keep in, keep in your mind about doing a small group. It's something that you don't have to be a teacher, you don't have to have a degree uh, in teaching, but it's something that will be really cool. It will help to grow you, and it's a great way to create community in this group. So, let's see if my computer is frozen here. It may be. Oh, it's working. Yeah, so Jordan said that, like you said, there's a, a card on the table if you're a first-timer. And I wanted to start this week out, just like we did last week. We always start with a verse. And if you guys want to open your Bibles to Matthew 28, 19. This is the verse that we call the Great Commission. It's Jesus kind of giving a charge to the people before he ascends into heaven, saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And then he says, look, I myself will be with you every day until the end of this present age. So that's where we start. That's kind of this flagship verse of missions. It's, it's when we think of missions and we think, what's the verse that talks about it? A lot of times you'll hear people say Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, the Great Commission. So when we look at missions, one, the biggest part is mission trips. And how many of you guys in this room have been on a mission trip? Raise your hand. Show me. Yeah, so, so I would say maybe half, maybe a little bit more than half. I had never been on a mission trip until... I was about 19 years old. I moved out here from upstate New York. Uh, when I grew up, the church I went to was awesome. We, we sent out missionaries, but I just never realized it was kind of for me. I thought it was, if, if you choose that path, you, you can do missions, and the church will help send you there, and you'll go, and you'll come back, and it'll be great. I didn't really have a full understanding of what missions look like. Maybe that's probably more my fault than anyone else's. Uh, but I moved out here to do an internship at the church that the focus was missions. It was Leadership and Missions Academy. And through that internship, I did two month-long mission trips. I went to Mexico for a month, drove around in vans with about 10 other people. At times, there was a, there were 15 passenger vans, and then at some points we had 16 people in the van. So it was pretty crazy for a month driving around all the way. We drove from here in Colorado Springs all the way to the very bottom of the Gulf of Mexico to a place called Villa Hermosa, and spent a long time there, Mexico City. And then later in that year, we went to China and spent a month there in Beijing. 
And so that was my introduction to missions, is these months-long trips, and I thought, well, this is cool. This is... So missions means a bunch of people who raise money, and they get together in teams, and they go for a month. And then as I started to learn more about the missions movement globally, I realized that there's much more to it than that. And that's where we're kind of going to go. We're going to look at the modern missions movement, which began with a group of people in Germany called the Moravians. And if you are in DLA, if you've heard David Perkins, one of the pastors here, give any sermon, almost any sermon, you've heard this story before. It's the story of a guy named Count Nicholas Ludwig von, Ludwig von Zinzendorf. He was born in the year 1700. And he is a really awesome guy. He's really passionate. He's really filled with, with God. He, he's really excited about the things that God is doing. And he goes to this school from the age of 10 to 16. And when he's in this school, him and his friends kind of start this club where they, they're like the, the super Christians in, in their school. They kind of take on this identity of we are really good at this, not in a prideful way of like, we're really good at create, like creating places where people can get excited about God. So this group in this school, they kind of are really, they're really passionate and they, out of this passionate movement, they have some prayer meetings, they start to look at evangelism and what it means to share the gospel with people. They get really excited, really passionate about it. And so from the time he's 16, he's got this vision and it escalates and it grows and develops. And by the time he's 32, in the year 1732, his group, which we call the Moravians, sends out the first two mission, missionaries into what we would kind of call the, the modern missions movement. And that's not necessarily a term that's official, but it's what I'm going to call what missions looks like today. It began with these two guys. These two guys, their names were Johann Leonard it's German, so it's kind of hard for me to pronounce it. Here's a picture of uh, Zinzendorf. And like I said, October 8th, 1732, Johann Leonard Dober and David Nietzschmann, they go on this first mission trip. And if you've been on a mission trip, like I said, if, like for me, the longest mission trip I was on was one month long. And we flew out of Colorado Springs and went to China on the, on the one trip, and we drove from here to Mexico on the other trip. It was a month long. The whole trip was, we, were, we left here and we were back within a month. These guys left Germany to go to the West Indies. Somehow the Moravians got connected with a guy. He actually came to Germany and was telling them about the slave trade in the West Indies. Pe- these people who were being taken from Africa sent to the West Indies as slave labor. And this guy had a real heart for evangelizing these people. And it kind of caught on with Zinzendorf. And so Zinzendorf and his group send people there. And these two guys, uh, they're very passionate and it's really admirable what they did. Like I said, my trips that I've been on, the longest mission trip that I've been on is a month long. These guys signed up for the trip, just the trip over to the West Indies from Germany at that time was a two-month trip on a big giant ship. So two months. And you say, well... How did they get the funds for it? How did they pay for a trip like that? How did they support themselves while they were there? Well, these guys gave everything they had for the missions movement. They sold everything they owned, gave it all away, and they were talking to people before they left, and someone asked them the question, how do you guys plan to support yourself? How, how are you going to 
it's one thing to get over there. How are you going to live? And they said, well, we're going to evangelize to the slaves. So why wouldn't we just live as slaves? We're going to sell ourselves into slavery. So that was their intention going over there is we're not only giving up everything we have here, the comforts of Germany, our home, but we're selling ourselves into slavery and giving our whole lives to this. We don't have any intention of coming back. As it turns out, when they got over there, they weren't even allowed to sell themselves into slavery because they were white. Uh, people wouldn't allow it, but they worked as carpenters to support themselves and evangelize to these slaves in the West Indies. And that's kind of the beginning of this movement. Around the same time, a guy named John Wesley, he is in school in Oxford, and he, like Zinzendorf, has, he's really passionate. He gathers a group of friends around him who commit to living a life of a Christian life that's really passionate, really devout, and they begin to get kind of nicknames. They get kind of made fun of, in a sense. People are, people give them these names as, I guess, a term of endearment, but it's also to, a way to make fun of them. They call them the Methodists because they're so methodical about what they're, how they live their Christian life. And then they also call them the Holy Club. So these guys actually have the name the Holy Club, and they kind of took, took it on. They just said, well, if you're going to make fun of us and call us the Holy Club, we're just going to call ourselves the Holy Club. So it was a really cool thing. So John Wesley, his brother Charles, these guys are people that you'll hear about. When you hear about the Methodist church, the Methodist movement, John Wesley is the founder. And his brother Charles wrote thousands and thousands of hymns that you'll hear in churches even today. And these guys follow the same track as Zinzendorf. They begin missions movements, and John Wesley and Charles Wesley, eventually, I think it was 1736, they go out from the UK, and they get on a ship and go to Savannah, Georgia, with the intention of evangelizing to the natives here, the Indians of America, as they called them, which we know as Native Americans is the correct term. And so, so they start the Methodist missions movement, which is also a uh, modern missions movement. And these trips, like I said, they're, they're lifelong endeavors. They're getting on ships for two months. They're going, they're selling everything they have. They're giving their entire lives to evangelize into these unreached groups. And that's how missions worked for the first few hundred years of the modern, modern missions movement. Most of this was because of the fact that if you're going to go somewhere, it's a big commitment. You have to get on a ship, you have to sell what you have because it's makes no sense to keep it. So this is the modern missions movement. It's months of, of traveling to places you're not used to and giving your life there. And that is the foundation for missions in the U.S. church. Like I said, John Wesley and Charles Wesley come to Georgia and lay the foundations of what missions looks like in the U.S. It's giving your life away. It's spending the whole life in the work. And the U.S. church, quickly, because of the discovery here, the gold, you've heard the story in, in history class, I'm sure, of the three Gs, gold, glory, and God, is the reason for exploring the new world. So the Christian church in America becomes easily the most affluent church in the world. So the resources are there to minister, but there's these barriers to doing missions work for the American church. And I'm going to call those barriers difference and distance. So if you're taking notes, you can write difference and distance on 
your notes. And the reason for that is because these barriers of distance and difference are, number one, the American church, because of travel technology then, like I said, you're on a ship if you're going to go anywhere. So the distance of, if you're going to spend your life in Africa or spend your life in Asia, you have to get on a ship and go, where if you're in Germany and you're going to go to the Middle East, you can get there there's multiple ways of getting there if you're going to go by land or by ship. It's not as long of a journey as coming from the U.S. So that's the distance barrier. But then the difference barrier is that the American church took on a very different culture with American culture. Even to this day, our church culture is very different than the church culture around the world because of the fact that American culture is so different. So these are the two barriers that are facing the American church when it comes to missions. First, I want to take a look at difference, the, the cultural differences in the church. Um, these cultural differences, if you're evangelizing to, to people in other parts of the world, cultural differences can be something as small as using different words when you're talking about scripture. I had a professor who, he works a lot in Africa, and he, he puts on these pastoral training for refugees he goes over for a few weeks at a time and invites hundreds and hundreds of people who are refugees who are growing congregations within refugee camps in impoverished parts of Africa. And they told him stories about how when people first came to evangelize in Africa, they would say, follow Jesus and he'll forgive your sins. He'll make them as white as snow. And these African people would say, what? What are you talking about? And so we see that, I mean, even a little thing like that where we live in a place where we see snow and people in Africa might not. So this is a, a cultural barrier. There's like language is a barrier that, of culture. Distance is a, is a barrier of culture when you're coming from a totally different part of the world. Um, so little things like that. But then there's also things that arise when we're in other parts of the world that are huge cultural barriers. When you go to to especially Africa, there's lots of witchcraft happening in and, and ways that we just don't ever experience here in the U.S. And it's quite a shock to people going, and our culture is quite a shock to the people who are there in the host nation. So difference is a huge barrier. And then we, we look at the second barrier, which is uh, distance. And distance, like I said, is a, is a big barrier originally because it just makes going on, a, on a, a trip, on a mission, much harder. It's a longer process. The travel is harder, more risky, takes longer. But with technology, obviously, that barrier goes away kind of quickly. Uh, with the invention of flight, we now can, I mean, you can get in any part of the world within 24 hours of travel, making these trips much easier. So, with the advancement of that technology, with the advancement of flight and vehicles that can travel way quicker than they did in the 1700s, this new phase of the the modern mission movement begins. And that's what we call short-term missions. So, if you're looking at about 1732, which is when the Moravians first sent those two guys out to the West Indies, to the present day, these trips where you're spending long amounts of time in another culture, we would call those long-term missions. We have a a few couples here at the mill who have been part of our family who now are in different parts of the world. One, if you guys have been around for a while, you might remember Jacob and Noelle Goodland, who Noelle was one of the women's pastors here on staff, and she and her husband a few years ago 
picked up and moved to Cambodia. And they're there long-term. They don't have an intention uh, or a, a short-term plan of coming back here. They're saying, we're giving our lives to living in Cambodia. They work with a ministry there called, um, it's, is it Saxom? And then In His Steps. That's what, I, that's what I was looking for, is In His Steps International. And they rescue girls out of sex trafficking in Cambodia. So this, like I said, this is kind of what we would call long-term missions. But short-term missions is this new thing that happens in the church. And it's quite the two-sided coin. Because short-term missions has some really great things about it. And it also has some very difficult things about it. Short-term missions is really a new thing. Within the last 60 years, give or take, it became a thing in, in the modern missions movement. The, one of the leading groups that did this is a group called YWAM, Youth with a Mission. It was founded by Lauren Cunningham. And him and a couple other organizations were really the forerunners in doing short-term missions where they would get a group of people together, raise a bunch of money, send them on a trip. They would do a little bit of training, send them on a trip to a different part of the world for anywhere from a week to a few months. And that's what missiologists would call a short-term mission. It's a short amount of time with an end goal in sight where you're going to come back to your, your native culture and kind of go on with life after this trip. So short-term missions changes the game for the modern missions movement. It's a big moment. The, the initiation of it causes lots of things to change in what it means to evangelize to the world. And that is going to be our discussion. And we're going to spend a, a good amount of time on the discussion today. So with your groups, if you're, if you're not at a table with another person, just jump in another table and have the discussion. And I want us to weigh the pros and cons of long-term missions and short-term missions. So if you're going to look at, if you're preparing to go on a trip and it's a long-term trip, what are the pros and cons of that? And what are the pros and cons of a short-term trip with a bunch of people? If you guys aren't familiar with what these terms entail or what these trips entail, I encourage you to get with a group of people, a larger group of people who maybe have some experience maybe with a short-term trip or know people who have been on long-term trips. And let's discuss what the pros and cons of these two mission focuses are. So hopefully you guys have had time to discuss and get through the both long-term and short-term missions. I'm going to have Stephen come around with a microphone, and I'm just going to kind of write on the whiteboard. I'll try to write as largely as I can so that most of us, if not all of us, can see. But let's just talk about it. What are, well, let's start with long-term missions and talk about some of the pros. What are, what are the pros and cons? We can do both at the same time. Pros and cons of long-term missions. It's working. Um, I'd say, I'd say um, some of the pros would be uh, you're setting up a long-term relationship with the local people there. Okay. Yeah, so kind of sustained relationship. Let's see if I can write larger. Okay. What else? What else did your table come up with? Any, any negatives? Well, obviously, um, a huge cost of time, money, and of... Uh, just preparation for such a long-term mission, it's a, usually it's a life calling. Yeah, so time uh, and would you say like a monetary cost? Uh, yeah, monetary co time cost, preparation. Time. Yeah, okay. Who else? What other tables? Pros and cons. Over to your left, Stephen. Over here. My left. Aaron Spurgeon. We said um, one of the pros... Obviously, with long-term long missions is, yeah, the depth of the calling you can have. 
Um, you become more legitimate if you spend yourself. Okay. People recognize that. So kind of to- a total spending of yourself? Yeah. Anything else? As far as a negative, or um, saying just like here in America with the church, you get immersed so much in the culture that sometimes you become blind to the real issues that are underlying if you become so used to them. Okay. So, so pertaining to long-term missions... Explain. If you're immersed for a long period of time, just like in American culture with the church, you easily adapt the culture okay. into the church, yeah, more and adapting. sometimes you can lose sight. Yeah, good. Okay, how about another table? Let's jump over to short-term missions and talk about some pros and cons of short-term missions. Anyone? Uh, We talked about one of the cons of short-term missions is it's really easy to hurt when you think that you're helping. Okay. And so, like, it's hard to achieve helping without hurting. So I think the classic example is, like, Tom's shoes. Uh, Like, they donate a whole bunch of shoes to a country, which sounds super awesome. And it's like, okay, a bunch of kids without shoes are getting free shoes. But what it really did in the long run is it put a whole bunch of shoemakers out of business and then it put some people who are climbing out of poverty right back into poverty. Yeah. And then, you know, I mean, Tom's shoes only last like a month, so. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, if you, there's, a, there's books about that idea. One specifically is called When Helping Hurts, kind of the backward, we're trying to help, and how can that actually end up hurting the culture we're going to help? Sasha? One of the things we talked about was um, the positive of short-term was just encouraging the people there. Maybe they've been there for 10 years and they're starting to burn out and just coming and bringing a, like a wave of fresh hands and fresh faces yeah. and just helping and Now, I know who them. you're talking about when you say the people there, but can you explain that to everyone else? What, what do you mean? Yes. Yeah, so, like, let's say a long-term missionary went over there 10 years ago and then a short-term team comes in to help them, yeah. just kind of refreshing them spiritually and helping with anything physical, like building a house or something. Good. Okay, what else do we have? Kind of in terms with the hurting and helping is that with short-term missions, we as Americans often go with our agenda. Okay, yeah. And what needs to happen is going there with the agenda of seeking to come along with the work that's already there and saying, how can we help you you know, come along with the ministries already established so that way you do not end up hurting the local community but actually help with the community and then it's more beneficial in the long run and that's the benefit of the long term is that you can go there with seeking to integrate yourself in the community by mm-hmm. being able to work there and not just live off of support but to be able to integrate yourself and um, have that long term beneficial side of helping and not just mm-hmm. the hurting side yeah Okay, anything else? Sean? Uh, whoa. Um, I have a very loud voice. Uh, a, a pro would be um, exposure. So people that probably wouldn't um, give themselves to a, a very long period of time okay. can see different cultures yeah. um, and just how Jesus is at work around the world. And then yeah. I think a negative would be just... I think time put into logistics. Sometimes I think it's hard to, not also on our end, but also on like whoever we're going towards, um, for them to be able to just say like, okay, we're going to 
give them this work on this day yeah. and have to keep them entertained or do work here or whatever it is. So, Yeah, good. Definitely. Anybody else have anything? So, uh, de- well, dependence has been highlighted a couple times, which is great. Um, I would kind of go off of that. Would it say that again? Um, so dependence, the dependence. whole dependence issue okay. um, has been highlighted a few times. Um, but I would even go, I think, further and say we as Americans have a tendency to go abroad um, with sort of the assumption that we can do anything. Yeah. Um, and very frequently, we do things that they're more competent at. So we'll go down there, we'll build a house. Um, and there are many stories, though, of you know, kids go high school going down, building a house, and then the people from the community actually coming in, spending more money to fix it at night so that the Americans feel competent. Huh. Um, so you get this whole dynamic where they're yeah. actually doing more work than they should do. Yeah, you're hurting when you're trying you're to help. You're actually hurting when you're trying to help. Good. Anything else? Um, my sister recently went on a DTS, and when she came back, she was completely different. And yeah. I think that, and she's actually now back at YWAM working on herself, working on her knowledge, working on what she knows about herself. And she was completely different. And, and she... The great thing about that was she was transformed and she's learning to love people in a different level for what they need. Yeah. So learning to love people for what they need and what they want. Um, the scary thing and the hard thing for her, and she actually stayed at YWAM for an extra month, because of it was when she came back, she, had a, she struggled with the American culture. Yeah. Um, with the abundance, the prosperity, and the, the, the issues that we have as a culture with having so much um, and not even realizing it. And so she really struggled with that, but now she's you know got compassion for us as a people again, which is great, and I think that's good. But that's kind of the thing you can run into is that we also have missions here at home. Yeah, you know. So that that we call that idea having problems with American culture when you come back, or vice versa, culture shock. So, I've, and I've kind of put that in both sides because culture shock, the term culture shock, I think, is a negative term. You'd say. It, it's never really great to have culture shock, but learning the culture is always a good thing. So any, anybody else before we move on? All right, so, so yeah, so we've written a bunch of things down here, lots of pros and cons of, the, of both of these, and I want to touch on a few of them that we've talked about because it, there are really great things about both. We've talked about the relationship that can be built with long-term missions where if you're going for a long-term, you you're really committed to these people. You're going in, you're meeting people, you're developing relationships with, whether it's you're working with a church or an organization, you're developing relationships there, but you're also developing relationships within the community. You become a part of this other community. So not only are, if, for example, you're working at an orphanage, not only do you meet all the kids in the orphanage, but if you're going to be there for two years, you also meet the guy who owns the grocery store down the street. So you develop these long-term relationships. You are really immersed in the culture. You're probably quicker to adapt to the culture because you have this mindset of, I'm going to be here for a long time, so I need to learn how to get by. I need to learn what it means. But then, like we talked about, the con of that is it's a huge commitment. It's a huge time and money cost. It's a a life cost. Usually, for young people, it's... If we're in our, like this stage of life, 18 to 30 something, and you're not married, this decision might be filtered through, do I want to do a long-term mission trip or do I want to start a family and get married? And So there's a huge commitment there. There's a huge cost. And then for short-term missions, I really like the encouragement thing that Sasha talked about. When you have a long-term missionary who's over there, 
the pro of a short-term trip could be that the long-term missionary has a heart for something that they want to do, but they're there, maybe them and their family or just them by themselves, and they don't have the ability to do it. So a short-term team can come through, partner with them, and bring encouragement and bring a, a energetic approach to this, this goal that the missionary has in place. Exposure is a big thing, and that's, I, want, I wrote selfish down here, uh, was it Aaron that was talking about, you know, sometimes we go into these trips and we have our own agenda, we have our own plan, and we say, this is, this is kind of what we want to get out of it, we want to do this, or in some cases, we, I've heard of trips where they go over to work with an organization and they say, we want to work with orphans, and the organization says, well, you can do that, but we have all this other work that needs to get done. And the, the short-term team says, yeah, but we want to work with orphans. And there's, it's kind of a joke, but it's kind of not, that if you're going on the trip and you don't get like, your Facebook profile picture with an orphan, then it's like, what's the point of the trip? You know? And that's, it's, it's, a, it's kind of a joke because it's kind of true, and it's sad. So, but the exposure thing... On the flip side of that, there is something that can be gained from missions. And, and it's not in a selfish way. It's not in a self-seeking way or a self-centered way. But there's something that we can learn from going and serving. There's something that we can learn from going and seeing a different part of the world and seeing how the church in another country operates. It's, these are our brothers and sisters. And so being a part of that is huge. Transformation goes along with that. There's studies that say that people, young people especially, who go on trips are more likely to continue to give. They'll have a different perspective about giving to the poor and giving to the homeless and serving. And, and even just with walks of faith, people who have been exposed to other cultures and exposed to the missions movement are more committed to their faith. And as far as statistically going, uh, those people usually stay in church longer. They usually will continue to go to church, continue to be faithful givers, continue to be involved in the community at their church, even in their home country. And then Sean talked about logistics, putting a group of people, if we were going to get 20 people together from this group and say, let's go to a different country and have something to do every day so that you're, we're not just wasting money and sitting around, it's a, it's a big undertaking to plan out a trip. Is log, there's a logistical cost to it. So these are the things that we have to think about when we weigh long-term and short-term missions. One of the things that I really wanted to highlight is the opportunity if we look at the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19, and 20, and we say that it's God's command to us, we say that it's Jesus telling us, this isn't a suggestion, this is me saying that we have the authority and so do it, then the opportunity that exists, especially with short-term missions, for people who might, on the other hand, never go, is huge. We have to remember that before short-term missions existed, to go on a mission trip was a huge cost. And to go on a short-term trip is not a small cost, but the, it's significantly lower than it was in the past. So this opportunity for obedience is huge. If we're going to look at it as a call, and we're going to say that this is something that Jesus called us to, then to say that long-term missions is the only way to go is, in a sense, excluding people from being obedient to what God has called us to do. And then the other thing is culture. Like I said, culture is something that we can grow from and we can learn from, but also we can help to, to grow other people and, like Jesus said, teach them the things that he's commanded us to do. We can make disciples. So there are some things where in culture, other cultures, 
there are things that are way different than American culture, but they're not bad. They're not wrong. They're not sinful. And so those are the types of things where we have to go in with a grain of salt, realizing that we're there to help, really realizing that we are going, bringing the gospel and bringing the good news, and we're not going to try to dismantle culture. But there are some things in these cultures that are just inherently wrong. And so, like cultures where, uh, you know, like you, you probably heard stories of in China where just the way that the culture is set up where families are only allowed to have one child. So if you're only allowed to have one child, the value, culture begins to place lots of value on male children. So female children are discarded and thrown out. And that's the type of thing where we can go in, not necessarily with American culture, but with a different worldview of saying we value life as Christians. There's a biblical worldview that values life. And those are the type of things where culture can be affected for the better. Uh, it's not a way of saying that the world should be like us. That's actually caused a lot of harm in the missions movement, more than good, is trying to get the Western culture into every part of the world. It backfires more than not. And then another note with that, too, is short-term missions, one of the things that's hard, the reason why I put culture shock on both sides of the line here is because we can learn from culture, and having the cultural experience is good for us. So in, in some ways, to have something fly in our faces and surprise us so much is a good thing. It'll help you grow. If you've never been on a trip before, you might not totally understand this, but if you've been on a trip, I'm sure it, it was something that hit you on the first day being out of this country and serving, especially in the third world. Culture shock will do a lot, of, a lot for you. It'll surprise you. It'll overwhelm you at times. But in the end, I think it's a growing experience. Short-term missions, though, a lot of times short-term teams have this idea that when they go over, they don't really have to adapt to the culture because I'm going to be here for a week and a half and then I'm going to go back and it'll be just like normal again. So why work really hard to be culturally sensitive? It's kind of a a difficult topic with long-term missionaries when they see short-term missionaries coming in. And then Sasha talked about encouragement and that's one thing that I want to talk about too is partnership. When we look at the balance and we try to say what's better long-term or short-term missions it's a yes it's an it's a both and and one of the best ways that we can do this is through partnership and this is something that i'm really happy with the way that new life has established missions here as a church is that one of the main focuses is on relationship and partnership so we have we on very rare occasions will send a short team to somewhere that we've never been before on very rare occasions will we send a team to a random organization that we've never heard of before. It's because the way that it's set up here is that we establish partnerships, we establish relationship, and we have a long-term effect there. And that's a really cool thing. And like Sasha said, for people who are long-term missionaries on the, on the ground in a country in a diff- culture that's different, maybe having one group of people come for a week and a half every year is the only thing keeping them there and keeping them from giving up and coming back. And then I just want to finish out with this, and that's the, the part, part of the Great Commission, and that's therefore go. This is the command that Jesus gave us. It's, it's saying, the, the transitionary word there, therefore, people say when you're looking at the Bible and you see a word like therefore, you have to look at what's before it. And what's before it is Jesus saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, has been given to Jesus. And he's saying, therefore, because of this fact, something else is happening. There's a new, there's a cause and effect relationship here. And so it's because of the authority, we are called to go. 
And I, I would say that it's really important for everyone to go on mission trips, uh, to be involved in the mission movement. I think it is a command. I think it is, it's more than a suggestion for us. It's more than Jesus saying, if, if it works out for you, if it's convenient, then go. If it sounds fun to you, then go. I think it's more than that. It's, it's saying, get outside of yourself, spend yourself, and do this thing. Tell people, about, tell people about the gospel, serve people, and make it more than just a fun thing. You know, Make it part of your lifestyle. And that's something where it, it becomes more than a cultural experience. It becomes more than serving people, even. It becomes an obedience issue. And so I think when we look at missions, we, we do take into a to account all of the pros and cons of short-term versus long-term and how it is, where you want to serve and who you want to serve with, whether you want it to be a week and a half or you want it to be 10 years, those are all important factors. But at the bottom line, kind of overarching everything in that is that it's an issue of obedience to what God has called us to do. And so I want to encourage you guys, if you have not been on a mission trip, this in the 18 to 30s range is the best time to do it before families come in and children get in. I mean, like I said, we have a a family here who used to be here, the the Goodlands, and they now have a family over in Cambodia. But I don't know what would have happened if they had kids before that, if it would have been a harder transition and they wouldn't have jumped into that work. So this time period, something that's been characteristic of all the missions movements in the modern mission movement, starting with Zinzendorf and the Moravians is that they were led by young people. They were led by college students and people who are kind of in this 18 to 30s range. And so that's an encouragement and a call. It's an encouragement that we as young people have the opportunity to lead our church here at New Life. We have an opportunity to leave the church as, as a whole in the world and saying that we, we will be the ones who set the tone, we set the pace for what happens in the global missions movement. And it, it's not something that we need to be led into. It's something that we just say, okay, like, we're going to be obedient to the call and we're going to go do it, even if we don't have everything figured out because we won't ever do that. There are people who argue about the right strategies for missions and will continue to do so, probably forever. But, so it's, it's something where you don't have to have everything put together. You don't have to have everything in line before you do this. It's something that we're called to do. And we as a church, specifically here at New Life, it's, it's probably easier than in most places to get involved and to go on a trip and serve in a different part of the world. So let's pray as we close. Lord, I thank you so much for the fact that you do use us in, in your work. God, that because you were given all authority, then, it's a, then it becomes us carrying the torch and carrying the work to people, carrying your gospel to people. So Lord, we, we just pray that you would give us encouragement, you would give us the courage, you would give us the, the ability to obey, Lord, you would give us peace and calmness about going to, to different nations of the world, Lord, to going to cultures that are so far different than ours, and doing it with, with boldness, doing it so that we can proclaim your word, and we just pray that, that people here in this room today would, would hear this call and that they would, they would make the decision to go. Or that they would make the decision to, to spend themselves, to pay the cost, whatever it means, Lord, whether it's physically or financially or uh, with families or with, 
with their plans, that they would give things up, Lord, to, to answer what you called us to do with the Great Commission. And so we just say that our lives are yours, our, our plans are yours. We, we make our plans, but you direct our steps, Lord. And so would you help us to see where you're calling us to, what, what part of the world you're calling us to, how we can be involved in spreading your word on this earth, Lord, and sharing the gospel with people who need to hear it. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Mills Sunday School Podcast. You can find more information at www.themillonline.org.